Let's open the Word of God to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's remember that the Bible description of preaching is to read in the Word of God distinctly and to give the sense. And so we shall do that with this chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me read it to you. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Amen Amen and amen, and thank you, blessed God, for your words. It is our great privilege, it is your great privilege to live on this side of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, partaking in the new covenant or the new testament of God's dispensations of dealings with men. There have been three great epochs 
in human history, three dispensations of God's dealings with men. The first 2,500 years covered from Adam to Moses. Then there was 1,500 years from Moses to Christ. And we are 2,000 years or 6,000 years after creation in the third dispensation of the New Testament. And there is no other. This one will simply move on in and merge with the heavenly kingdom. Because we are now worshiping in truth. We understand the everlasting covenant. He is dealing with us by His Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. And the throned, victorious Son of God. There's nothing to add or change. Except for us to be in His presence. And our worship will continue in a very similar fashion to what it is now. It is our duty by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and gospel conversion to be transformed and to have lives that are show us to be certified followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Epistles manifestly declaring that we are the Lord's. It is our blessing to hear the simplicity of the gospel right. preached with great plainness of speech without the hidden obscurity of shadows and examples and figures and pictures and symbols of Moses' religion. It is our goal to take the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of Jesus Christ to grow to be more and more like Him in glory. And we have that strength and privilege to do so. We have fabulous blessings of liberty and power to grow in our Christian lives to be more like Him. We live in the end of the world, the Bible tells us. This is the last dispensation until we are with the Lord. It's our honor and privilege to be the best sons of God we can be for Him. When you look at these 18 verses, they can be broken into these sections, and I'll just briefly mention it. The first three verses are Paul's defense of his ministry, which he had to do often with the church at Corinth. Because of the Jewish teachers that came out of Jerusalem that tried to demean him to gain themselves a following. Verses 4 through 6, Paul's sufficiency is of the Lord. Verses 7 through 11 are the superiority of the new covenant or the new testament or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 12 through 16 are the new covenant methods of dealing with things very plainly. And then verses 17 and 18 are how we can grow in grace by the Holy Spirit and this plain New Testament gospel. Verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Paul only began to defend his ministry as he will spend most of the rest of this epistle running here and there, but he will be coming back over and over to defend his ministry against opposition of some false teachers that were in Corinth. He had just stated his triumphant ministry in the last verses of chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 2 and see the last verse, or if you see in verse 14, now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. And then he says in verse 17, For we are not as many 
which corrupt the Word of God. So Paul identified his way of preaching to be different from other men. And he pointed out that he always triumphs because God was using him. And here he goes again in the third chapter by saying, do I have to commend myself again? It's a rhetorical negative. No, he's not commending himself again just for the pleasure of praising himself. He has to do it for the sake of these Corinthians and to glorify God in the matter. And for that party that was at Corinth that demeaned him. He wasn't engaged in some foolish boasting to merely promote himself to this church. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? No, we're not just going around looking for opportunities to commend ourselves. We have a reason to do what we're doing. Now look at the second question. Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? These teachers that came out of Jerusalem, in order for the Corinthian church to accept them, had to have letters of commendation from the apostles in Jerusalem that they were brethren or other teachers in Jerusalem. Paul didn't need those. Paul didn't have any letters. Paul had the power of the Holy Spirit so that he could perform miracles of a stupendous sort and preach the gospel in such a way that the Holy Spirit used it and it was an obvious blessing upon him wherever he went without their little pieces of paper. It was a New Testament custom that you would write and send letters from one church to another. You can read about Aquila and Priscilla doing that with Apollos, and there are other examples of it as well. But Paul didn't need any letters of commendation to the Corinthian church, and he certainly didn't need any letters of commendation from that church to anyone else. Verse 2, Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Now there's two places where this epistle showed up, and that was in the hearts of Paul and his ministerial fellow laborers, they knew that God was with them. They knew that God had blessed them among the Corinthians, and it was known by everyone else. Because it was known and read of all men. For there to be a church in Corinth is like there to be a church in San Francisco. Or for there to be a church in Key West. Or for there to be a church in Las Vegas. Which takes a great deal of effort. And there's no longer a church and hasn't been for years in Las Vegas of what you may be thinking. Because for a Corinthians, who were some of the most wicked people on earth, to be converted and formed into a church that worshipped the God of Israel and followed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, showed that a great work had been done there. Paul knew it, his fellow ministers knew it, and so did the rest of the Christian world, known and read of all men, that a change had taken place there. Ye are our epistle. We don't need letters of commendation. We don't need epistles that we bring out and show you some letter on letterhead from someone that we are Jesus Christ's apostles. We have the proof in your own church. Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. And brethren, while we pass over this verse, we want that to be true of our church, we want that to be true of our families, and we want it to be true of ourselves. That when other people look at us, they see an epistle of Jesus Christ. I have often used the words with you, 
Let us be living epistles of Jesus Christ. We should not have to say hardly anything. Just like the Apostle Peter told wives of unconverted husbands in 1 Peter chapter 3 that they should be able to win their husbands without the Word, simply by their conduct. Let us always have that conduct. Verse 3, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. This long verse is saying the same things again that we've already covered, that for as much, we don't need letters of commendation to you or from you, because there already is a letter of commendation. And it's not written in ink, because it's not on letterhead, written by men to other men, And he introduces the fact that he doesn't have anything to do with those Jewish legalists by saying, neither is it in stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Because our religion is entirely different from a Jewish legalist religion who puts his stock in writing in stone. But real religion is the Spirit of God writing in the fleshy tables of our heart and changing our heart. And so for as much... We don't need any such epistles from men to men. You are manifestly declared. We have an obvious, formal, official certification that we are apostles by the church at Corinth. Because the church at Corinth shows that Jesus Christ has done the work. We've been His servants and ministers to bring you to conversion because it's a work of the Spirit of God in the heart. And what a work He did with them, and what a work He did with us. Do you remember Romans chapter 1? It says that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. The church at Rome, back in the days of the Apostle Paul, had their faith spoken of throughout the whole world. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, about verses 2 through 6 or so, Paul said the Thessalonian conversion was known wherever he went, that he didn't have to say anything that they themselves would tell him of what kind of an entering in he had among the Thessalonians. That they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. All that stuff was publicly known about those churches and this church as well, known and read of all men. Let that be true of us. You know, this is not my main lesson. The main lesson is the last two verses of this chapter. And so we want to speedily make our way there. But while we're passing over this, let our lives be living epistles. Manifestly declaring that Jesus Christ has been at work in our lives. Manifestly declaring it. Publicly certifying that we are Christians. Not that we have to tell someone, by the way, I'm a Christian. They should know that. What a shame if we have to tell them. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Let me say again, the Apostle Peter told wives that were married to unconverted husbands that those unconverted husbands could be converted, could be saved by the conduct of those wives. Let's have that kind of conduct. 
So there's the first three verses of Paul defending his ministry by the evidence that he had in Corinth of a church being there that was serving the Lord Jesus Christ and had laid aside all the fornication and other sexual deviant behavior of that city. You want to see how much there was? Flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Corinth was the Las Vegas, San Francisco, Key West, Asheville of that time. Those four cities being four places where sodomites and other sexual deviants gather in our nation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Now we've got five sins listed so far, and four of them are sexual. This is Corinth. A verb was coined in the days of the apostle to Corinthianize. Was to corrupt in sexual manners, in manners, sexual manners. And here we have five sins, and four of them are of a sexual sort. And he says in verse 11, And such were some of you. Wow! They had sodomites in the church. That is, abusers of themselves with mankind. There were effeminate cross-dressing fairies in that church. There were adulterers and there were fornicators. But it says, And such were some of you. But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's why. That's the living epistle. What did you do in the past that you shouldn't do in the future? Let's make that change to manifestly declare that Jesus Christ has done a work in us. Now if you ever even desire that, that means He's already done the work because you're not going to make the work happen by putting on some front. But He has done the work. Thank you, Lord. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 4. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. That's where Paul let his ministry rest, was in the visible demonstration that Jesus Christ had blessed his ministry to change lives. Verse 5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. In case anyone might misunderstand, the Apostle Paul couldn't change a life. And when you try to change a life, you can't change them. You can't even change the lives of your children. You're going to have to trust the Lord to change the hearts and minds of your children or anyone else that you ever have to deal with. Remember, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul explaining to Timothy how to be a great New Testament minister. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure might grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Even with Paul as your instructor, and Timothy as the best man on planet earth Paul had met, he wasn't going to be able to deliver anyone unless God granted repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And God granted repentance to these people in Corinth. And it was the power of God, not the power of Paul. And he wants you to know that in verse 5. Verse 6, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, 
but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The message that Paul brought was very different from what Jewish legalists taught. Paul's message was very different from what Moses taught. Paul brought a ministry of the New Testament or the New Covenant as opposed to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Now the Jews never called their covenant old because they didn't believe or see the new one. And when you call something old, that means it should be thrown away. And so not until the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians and this chapter where we are told that the new covenant is better than the Old Testament does that old one get thrown away. And Paul is just stating that the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of God has made us able ministers. We are able to preach and teach effectively the new covenant. And Paul wasn't ashamed to admit that. He wasn't ashamed to admit that he labored more abundantly than all of his peers in preaching the gospel. Paul had a calling from God far superior to any priest or prophet of the decayed Old Testament. He taught the New Testament. And every New Testament minister ought to remember that the primary message that he brings in the pulpit and what everything should point to is the New Testament. We use the old only to give us some matter to fill in what the new doesn't teach in detail. For instance, a very simple example. The New Testament does not teach corporal punishment or spanking children. It just says two times, one in Colossians, one in Ephesians, fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So we go back to the book of Proverbs and we fill in all the details. The New Testament doesn't teach a tithe. But we go back to the Old Testament before or after Moses on Mount Sinai and we see the 10% there. The Old Testament fills in certain details like that for us in the New Testament. But what a message we have in the New. You know, there are a lot of ministries today that to entertain their people go back to the Old Testament. They actually hold Passover suppers. Why in the world would we hold a Passover supper? We have the fulfillment of it. Why do we want to look at the shadow? If I want to show you my wife, am I going to show you her shadow on the ground from the sun? Or am I going to show her to you? There's no details in the shadow. It is just a vague representation of the truth. And so was the Old Testament. But there are ministries today that will spend months. Some ministries are entirely based on showing the details of the furniture of the tabernacle. That tent that Moses had. Who cares? We have the true tabernacle. Explained to us in the New Testament. Those old ordinances were forced on Israel, according to Hebrews 9 and verse 10, only for a short period of time. That was the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Who wants to graduate? I do. I want to graduate from the school of God's religious teaching and be a New Testament Christian. I don't want to be back there trying to tell you what the little tassels meant that were hanging on the, the wall surrounding the tabernacle. We have something far better. We have the holiest that is above, and the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting there. And so, 
You know, I get in trouble sometimes when I write ministers. I mean, poor David Cloud. Some of you know who I am referring to. Once in a while, since he doesn't like me very much, I write him anyway. And when he's wanting to talk about his books that detail the tabernacle, I write him and remind him of this very verse right here. When I encounter some primitive Baptist preachers, they sometimes hear from me because they always want to be talking about types and shadows of the Old Testament, which means they don't know anything about Christ. Because there was nothing back there except for prophets who were given exceptional wisdom and understanding about Christ. That is not how you preach Christ. You preach Christ from the New Testament, where He is plainly, manifestly declared in very plain language. As we're going to see in verse 12. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. So I'm not a type and shadow preacher. And I'm so sorry that we haven't spent months in Ezekiel chapter 1 trying to figure out the wheels in a wheel and what it might mean about your eternal destiny. We're able ministers of the New Testament. And if there's anyone sitting in this congregation or hearing this sermon anywhere else, that God has called, that Jesus Christ has called to be His servant, I am reading a verse to you that should light you up. Hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Not in the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The letter here. You know, sometimes we use the expression, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. That is not here at all. This letter here is synecdoche for the entire Old Testament. The spirit here is synecdoche, referring to the Holy Spirit and the spiritual religion of the New Testament. It includes the Holy Spirit most definitely because of the Holy Spirit being referred to in verse 3. The Spirit of the living God is the Holy Spirit. But it is it is comparing the Old Testament versus the New Testament by the words letter, where there wasn't any spirit, and by the Spirit, which is not based in the letter of commandments written in stone, but is based in the writing of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. Who, Verse 6, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth. What letter kills? The Old Testament kills. How does the Old Testament kill? Because it says, do this and live, and nobody can do it. So they all die. It is, as the next verse says, verse 7, the ministration of death. And as verse 9 says, the ministration of condemnation. The Old Testament condemns you to death because it says, do this and live. And you can't keep the 715 commandments of the Old Testament perfectly, so we're all dead before God. The New Testament tells us that the Old Testament was given to show us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And to prove that we are all condemned, like the Apostle Paul even himself said, that once without the law, when he just had a Jewish legalist idea of the Old Testament, he thought that he was alive. But then he said the commandment came... Sin revived and I died. The commandment, the, 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 the commandment that got the apostle Paul was, thou shalt not lust. 
When Paul understood that commandment, that even his thoughts toward evil were sin, he thought he was sinless until he understood that. As soon as he understood that, he said, sin revived in my life. I thought I had put all sin to death. But sin, this is Romans 7, but sin revived and I died. I was dead and condemned again. And so that's what is intended by verse 6. Verse 7. Okay, we're going to do some comparison in glory. There have been three epochs of men and God's dealings with them on earth. 2,500 years of Adam to Moses. Where are these three dispensations taught? Romans chapter 5. Verses 12 through 21. In each dispensation, there is a progression of glory and a progression of revelation. There wasn't a written sentence for the first 2,500 years of this world. No one even had a sentence by the inspiration of God. Unless we stick Job in there. Let's just leave him alone for the moment because we're thinking of Moses' writings and the writings of the children of Israel. Then there was 1,500 years from Moses to Jesus Christ when Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 2,500 years after the creation of the world. And it extended for 1,500 years to John the Baptist and Jesus because it is written in Luke 16.16, the law and the commandments were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And then, from Jesus and His apostles, we have the New Testament, and we have been chosen for that testament. Thank you, Lord. Verse 7. Each of those dispensations is more glorious than the previous, because God is revealing more and more of Himself, and His wonderful mystery of salvation, and of the uniting of the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 7. But if the ministration of death... That's the Old Testament, written and engraven in stones. That's what Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. If that ministration of death was glorious, and it was glorious, remember? Moses had to cover his face, and that's not the only thing said about that event. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19, you will find that when Israel gathered around Mount Sinai, that mountain was shaking and there was all, there was a huge fire on it and it was like a blast furnace going up into, into the sky. And there was a trumpet sounding that got louder and louder and louder. Moses said in Hebrews chapter 12 that he exceedingly feared and quaked. Now Moses knew God like no one else had ever known God. Moses had seen a burning bush. Moses had seen the Red Sea divided. Moses had performed all the plagues upon the nation of Egypt. But Moses exceedingly feared and quaked at the glorious presence of God. The Bible refers to it throughout its pages of God coming down on a mountain and what it did to that poor mountain. You know, they had to put a rope around the bottom of Mount Sinai that even if a puppy dog or your kitty cat or an ox or an ass or a goat cross that line, it was to be thrust through with darts. It was a very intimidating, frightful, glorious sight. And you've had read in your presence today, when Moses came down from meeting with God, he had to put a veil over his face because his face shone because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. And so it was glorious. And so that's what it's referring to here. If the ministration of death, the Old Testament that condemns all of us, written and engraven in stones was glorious... 
so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance. You have that read to you today from Exodus 34. Which glory was to be done away? It was just temporary for only 1,500 years. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? If getting condemned by two tables of stone that said, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Every time we lie, every time we exaggerate, that costs anyone understanding of truth, we're guilty of that commandment. That is the ministration of death. Along comes the ministration of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit writing those commandments in our heart. I hope you read Hebrews chapter 8 last night, that the new covenant will not be written in stones, but in the fleshy tables of our heart, and we are changed by the power, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so verse 8 says, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? And our answer to that rhetorical question is, the New Testament is obviously much more glorious than the Old. Verse 9. Now verses 7 and 8 have said that the Old Testament was glorious even though it condemned people and even though it was temporary. These are some of the differences between the two. The Old condemns, the New saves. The old is temporary, the new is perpetual and forever. Verse 9, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. Definitely. The gospel comes along and preaches and tells us how we've been made righteous by the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 teaches us, By the disobedience of one, Many became sinners. Why do babies die? Why do babies die? Because they are held responsible for the sin of Adam. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. So, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. What a ministration that is. That is having a gospel ministry. To tell you that there is a second Adam that lived 2,000 years ago and undid everything the first Adam did towards you. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ministration of the Spirit. That's the letter versus the Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Verse 9, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. Preaching established forever righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that clothes us is a glorious message, far better than anything in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you want to be righteous, just keep all the commandments perfectly for as long as you're alive. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ has already done it for you. Lay hold on eternal life. Believe on Him. Be baptized in His name and bring forth the fruits of righteousness showing that you are one of His. Verse 10. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. Now, Paul by this point has reached a place where he just wants to make fun of, he wants to play a little game with the word glory. Because in your minds, you should already recognize that the Old Testament compared to the New Testament shouldn't be compared. Because the New Testament has so much more glory than the Old Testament. So, here are the words. Verse 10. For even that which was made glorious... That's the Old Testament. 
had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. Paul says to you and to me, I'm giving the Old Testament some credit for being glorious. That when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face did shine. But let's be realistic. It really didn't have any glory. And how can I say it really didn't have any glory? By reason of the glory of the New Testament. Here's my little analogy for you. If I light a little tiny birthday candle in a perfectly dark room, is that a lot of glory? Is that a lot of light? If I light that little birthday candle outside at noon, can you even tell that it's on? No. It has no glory compared to the glory of the sun that just blows its glory away. Now when you're in the darkness of the Old Testament and you have that little picture of God in the tent and tabernacle, there's some glory. But when you get to the New Testament and the sun of righteousness is shining... There is no more glory of the Old Testament. And so Paul's just having a little fun with you by the inspiration of the Spirit of God playing with the word glory. I love it. Because he admits that it had some glory, then he says it doesn't really have any glory. And on what basis can he say it doesn't have glory when it did have glory? Because when compared to the real glory, it had none. Verse 11, for if that which is done away was glorious, that is the temporary nature of the Old Testament, which was only to last for 1,500 years as a way of relating to God, much more that which remaineth is glorious. That's the New Testament that lasts forever. Okay, now the ministry. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. The Apostle Paul says, since we have this new ministry of salvation of the Holy Spirit of God, that lasts forever, we use great plainness of speech. Our way of presenting the truth is nothing like what Moses did when he came down with that veil, which was nothing like all the examples and shadows and figures of the true. It is the true, plainly stated in the simplest language that we can give to men. That is the way preaching ought to be done. There ought not to be speculation. There ought not to be types and shadows. There ought to be a plain declaration of God's Word to your consciences. So let me read the first seven verses of chapter 4. Therefore, You can tell that it's connected by the word therefore. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, this New Testament ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. He's talking about all his competitors, the false teachers at Corinth, making mincemeat of them. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Paul could not regenerate. Paul could not change. Paul could not open the heart of Lydia. The Lord had to do the work. Peradventure God will grant repentance. Peradventure God will open the heart of Lydia. Then she attends to the things spoken by Paul. But look at Paul's method in the second half of verse 2. By manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. I have your consciences sitting before me this morning. There are other consciences that will hear and or watch this service later. All I do is make manifest. I, this second verse of chapter 4 and the second half, I manifest the truth to you. I use great plainness of speech to just tell you what the verses are saying about Jesus Christ having obtained righteousness for us. I just stick it out there on the table as plainly as I can. That is Bible preaching. By manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. I as one many generations of preachers from Paul, am an able minister of the New Testament. I commend myself by simply declaring the obvious truth of the New Testament to you and laying it before your consciences. We don't do it with the wisdom or the eloquence of men. We don't do it by personality. We don't do it by entertainment. We don't do it by praise band. We don't do it by anything like that. We just stick the truth out on the table. And if you're born of God... You believe it and you love it. And if you don't, then so be it. The devil has blinded your mind that you cannot believe the gospel and we just go on. Sometimes it's the savour of life unto life. Sometimes it's the savour of death unto death. But in either case, we always triumph making manifest the gospel because it reveals the hearts of men. And what we want to find are those men that the Spirit of God has written on the fleshy tables of their heart because they embrace the truth. And they're thankful for an able minister of the New Testament and for the truth of the New Testament. We were at verse 12, and I wanted to read to you chapter 4 so that you could appreciate a fuller explanation of great plainness of speech. Verse 13, Paul is saying, And not as Moses, I am not like Moses, which put a veil over his face. That veil was already mentioned in verse 7. It's mentioned again here, and it's mentioned again in verse 15. But we're at verse 13. I am not like Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Now Paul is moving from the literal veil that was over Moses' face to the figurative veil that was hung over the Jews for 1,500 years, including when Jesus Christ was here on earth. That veil dropped over their eyes so that they could not figure out that their covenant was temporary. They couldn't see to the end where it was going to be abolished. They thought, this is it. We're the preeminent people on earth. We're the greatest nation. We're God's people. We have God's temple. We have God's word. We have God's priesthood. And that veil was hung over them. They couldn't tell that it was coming to an end. As the verse tells us rather plainly, Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Paul's moving 
from the physical veil to a metaphorical one to a spiritual one that is hung over Israel until his day. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded. See, he's talking about something mental. Their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, not Moses' veil, but the metaphorical one he introduced. The same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. When a person would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the veil would be lifted, and the Scriptures would all of a sudden come together and make perfectly good sense that the Old Testament was just temporary and was only to teach them to look for Christ. Oh, thank you, Lord. You know, we we don't even think of this as a struggle. We look at it and say, well, what, morons? Why couldn't they see it? We just had it explained to you. A veil was hung over their face. If you want to see a moron, just look in the mirror. If it wasn't for the Spirit of the living God writing in the fleshy tables of your heart, where would we be this morning? Where would we be? I might be groveling more than the rest of you in the confessional booth of Rome. We might be over in Israel on a tour of the Holy Land. Where might we be if it weren't for the Spirit of God? I hope you understand how I meant what I said. We look at the verse and we say, why couldn't they see Jesus Christ? Jesus said to them, oh fools, He said to them, you're able to foretell the weather tomorrow. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. He, Jesus told them that 2,000 years ago. You are able to forecast the weather, but you can't tell that your Messiah, the Son of God, is here. There was a veil. That veil did not hinder them intellectually because they could forecast the weather. That veil hindered them spiritually. And brethren, if you want to sin against the truth that God's given you, if you want to be slow and not hasten to obey the commandments God reveals to you, He is able to put a veil over your eyes so that you cannot see certain things. Sometimes when we look in history at some notable Christian and wonder why couldn't they see, at some point in their life, they were confronted with truth and they made a choice not to go with that truth and a veil was put over their eyes. Let me give you an example. Knowing that Jonathan Edwards was a baby sprinkling, eternal sonship, state church, heretic, hurts. I have read many good things from his pen. And I'm thankful for what he wrote that I was able to read when I was 18 years old. But he couldn't figure out baptism. He may have met some Baptists. I want you to understand that to have been Jonathan Edwards in the richest church of New England in the 1700s, the Baptists were despised, poor, People very different from the classical education of a man like Jonathan Edwards. I'm only speculating. I do not know this. It just all makes pretty good sense to me. He encountered some Baptists. They were poor. 
None of them had any classical education. He despised them to some degree. And so the Lord put a veil over him, never able to figure out the doctrine of baptism. You know, when you read the Bible, there are no babies baptized. There's no sprinkling of water on the forehead. There's no rubbing of water on the forehead with the thumb of a Roman Catholic priest. There's no salt stuffed in a baby's mouth like Rome does. None of those things. Why can't they see it? A veil is dropped over their eyes. If they ever had no veil. And so the point to us is, forget about Jonathan Edwards. What about Jonathan Crosby and the rest of you? What truth have you been shown that you are not aggressively pursuing with your might? The Lord is able to drop a veil over us. And we will never know that it's there. We will think that what we're holding is the truth when in fact we're holding error. That was verse 14. Verse 15, but even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. It's their heart in verse 15, which is plural. It's singular, it shall turn to the Lord in verse 16. From Romans chapter 11, we learned that there was a generational blindness of the nation of Israel. And what was the purpose for that generational blindness of Israel? To get the gospel to us, Gentiles. And is God able to graft blinded Jews back in again when they repent? Yes. And so we see 2 Corinthians 3, and I refer to this passage several times when I preach through Romans chapter 11. But I want verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is that Spirit. This is the Gospel of the New Testament. This is the New Covenant. This is a ministration totally different from the old. Instead of Moses, instead of tables of stone, this is the work of the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ upon the hearts of men. Now the Lord Jesus is that Spirit. The Spirit that has been mentioned way back in verse 3, the Spirit of the living God. Now the Lord Jesus is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Do you know how many times I have heard 2 Corinthians 3.17 used at political meetings? Do you know how many times I've heard this in a political context? Like America was Christian, therefore America had liberty. This isn't talking about national politics whatsoever. Not in any way, shape, or form. This is talking about the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant of religious worship to God. The Old Covenant did not have the presence of the Holy Spirit in it. The emphasis was not upon the commandments being written in our hearts. The emphasis was on the commandments being written in stone. But where Jesus Christ is, the Spirit accompanied Him. And where Jesus Christ left, He said, it's expedient for you that I go away and the Comforter will be given. They go hand in hand. And He is called the Spirit of Christ. Galatians chapter 4 and Romans 8. I have two witnesses that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And it's that Spirit in us that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, because we are sons. And they go together. We believe on Jesus Christ. No man can say that Jesus Christ is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 12.3 The Holy Spirit witnesses of Jesus. Jesus purchased the gift of the Holy Ghost for us. Now where the Spirit, where the Lord, now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That liberty is from the condemnation and the bondage and the blindness of the Old Testament. This is not liberty from England. This is liberty from the Old Testament. Where the Lord Jesus Christ is, 
The second Adam that has secured righteousness for us, there is liberty. We don't have to keep the law of God and know that we have failed and know that we are condemned because we have life and eternal life and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not in the darkness, the bondage, the blindness, the obscurity of the Old Testament. We are not under the ministration of condemnation. We are under the ministration of liberty. The New Testament is called the perfect law of liberty. We obey it because we have been enabled to obey it. We don't enable it to get righteous. We obey it because we've been made righteous and we want to please the one who has made us righteous. Oh, I love that verse. But I love 18 more. Uh, now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where we have Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, there is liberty from the condemnation, bondage, blindness, veil hanging, and all those negative things of the Old Testament. We are free before God. By free grace, we have been justified, made righteous, and are going to be with Him in heaven by the work of one on our behalf. Verse 18, But we all, comparing us to those Israelites that had the veil upon their heart and over their, and over the eyes of Moses. But we all, that is us New Testament Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, because Paul was one of them, but we all, with open face, no veil, with open face, beholding as in a glass, we are seeing a perfect presentation and image, the glory of the Lord. What Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ. We get to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the image of God. The express image of God. This verse is why I'm preaching and I'm not only but a couple minutes from finishing because I want you to grab this verse and understand all the verses that preceded this one were to show us that the New Testament is so much more glorious than the Old Testament and we should be so thankful to be on this side of the cross and so thankful for the Apostle Paul and so thankful for plain speech that just lays it out and tells us how we've been made righteous by the singular obedience of one, the second Adam, our Lord and Savior, and that He has purchased for us the power of the Holy Spirit within us so that all things that pertain unto life and godliness are easily done. Right, right. I wish I knew how to preach it to you and say it plainly. I'm trying to say it plainly. But we all, with open face, no veil, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. Instead of a veil, a glass, a looking glass, a mirror, a window, we plainly see Jesus Christ because of how plainly He's presented to us. But we all, with open face, not like the Old Testament, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. We see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What aspect of Him do you want to think upon for just a minute? He is altogether lovely in any aspect that you pick. Do you remember that sermon series? You. He is altogether lovely. We want to remember that. It was prayed a couple of times this morning in the back room. It's been mentioned from this pulpit already this morning before I was in the pulpit. He is altogether lovely. We are able to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and are changed into the same image. This is phenomenal. We are changed into the same glorious image of Jesus Christ 
from glory to glory, advancing in degrees of glory as we advance in degrees of similarity to Jesus Christ, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. How does it work? Plain preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work and how He wants us to live and the power of the Holy Spirit unfettered in lives that are obeying what they hear, the combination together of the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in us who is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can do everything God expects of us to look more and more like His own image that He sent to earth who is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can advance from degree of glory to the next degree of glory, being more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That is my desire for this church. This is why I'm preaching this series. Now you may understand why this chapter called Higher Ground. Because we want to go higher and higher from glory to glory to glory to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 3.10. There are other verses that could be raised. There are other verses that use the glory of the New Testament and how we can achieve it, obtain it, and grow in it. But let me share this one with you among many. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. God gave us a new man inside by regeneration. That new man inside us is created in the image of Jesus Christ. That's the same thing that was taught over there in chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it says that Jesus Christ is the image of God in verse 4 of chapter 4. And it's the same image right here in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. But we all, my brethren, my brothers and sisters this morning, we have an open face. There's no veil upon us. And we are able to behold clearly in a glass the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, it's not obscure. It's not a shadow. It's not an example. It's not a figure. It is the real thing. And we can be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If we are submitting ourselves to God, and if we are seeking Jesus Christ, if we're embracing the gospel preached to us, if we are not grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, we can advance in degrees of glory to be more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the lesson of 2 Corinthians 3.18. We came to it slowly But I hope in the slow development of the chapter, we appreciate the glory of the New Testament. So we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. If we mind earthly things, if we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit, if we neglect the preaching of this plain gospel we will not advance in degrees of glory. We are not fatalists. This is not some pattern that we've all been put on that will all be achieved in this life. Many squander the opportunity by the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the Gospel to advance like they should. And if a minister does not take heed to himself, and if a minister does not take heed to the doctrine, he will lose himself and his congregation. They will not achieve God's best for their lives. Pray for your minister. Pray for yourselves. Let's pray for one another. Let's encourage each other. We have no veil. 
We have the perfect message, the ministration of the Spirit. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We can advance in degrees of glory to be more and more like our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.